Hi, everyone. This is Robin Kennedy, and welcome to part two of Career Secrets I Wish I Knew Earlier. I had uh, I had actually named this uh, uh, before what I wish I knew before, or I wish I knew then, what I know, what I know now. And uh, I got to mute everybody here so I don't get the feedback. But Two weeks ago, I did part one. So part of our mission here at PGIP Tech is to is to help give um, opportunities and opportunities to learn things that may just not may not be just focused on technology. So one thing that I do for the internship is I I provide this governance meeting every Thursday night, and we talk about everything from a governance perspective. For example, risk and controls. Um, policies and procedures and really everything about running an IT shop that you would need to know. But then I pitched to Doc, you know what, there are some things that are really valuable for, for, for students or for people entering the IT field that may help them work at companies. And so I started this series um, on Thursday nights and the first one was Career Secrets I Wish I Knew Earlier and I found out Wow, that was a there was a lot of stuff. So that was part one, and tonight is part two. So for those of you who haven't viewed, oh, make sure everybody's clocked in for tonight because it counts. But everybody that hasn't viewed part one, I'll go over that just a little bit. So first, little disclaimer. So it's a collection of lessons learned over time, either by me or that I've observed in other people, and or that were recommended to me. Um, with most things, the situation will dictate the correct path for you. So what I say you may want to try in a certain situation may not be the best thing for you. So you're going to have to use your judgment. And then take these within the spirit in which they were meant. So food for thought, develop your own instincts and to be able to trust your own gut in certain workplace situations. And then um, at the end of the day, your gut is a culmination of your experiences. And uh, we'll talk more about that later. So the first one, I'll just um, review from last, from two weeks ago. Uh, the first one was be a good person. It shows. So your energy introduces you before you even speak. Look people in the eye, ask about their day. Be genuine when you interact with other people. Um, you can always revisit the recording in Freedcamp. Um, to see part one, so I won't go into these in detail. But be the expert without being arrogant. So being kind matters. There are many experts in the room. You may be the expert in your field, but you have to respect that the others in the room are experts in theirs. Change is the only constant, so get used to the change curve. Understand how to surf the curve. Understand that you're going to feel shock, denial, frustration, and depression when a change happens. And then you're going to experiment with the change, make a decision whether or not you're going to accept with the change, the change and get with the program, or you're going to change your situation then entirely. And then whether you integrate with the change or you change your situation. Technology isn't always the best way. Sometimes printing something out, shoe leather, or looking at someone um, in analog or talking to someone face-to-face -face is going to be the better way. So technology isn't always the right answer. Assume everyone has a full inbox. So call them, visit with them, or chat with them. 
lobbing over the wall and saying not it doesn't make you a good team player. Okay, Learn how to interact with other people. And use crayons on a daily basis. So we as humans, we've been drawing since the dawn of time on cave walls, using uh, um, paints and, and um, other types of inks since before we could even speak. So sometimes a blank piece of paper and a box of colored pencils can start a great conversation that'll be valuable for everyone. And then using crayons on a daily basis. Um, the key to being successful in IT is breaking complex concepts down into consumable pieces without being demeaning to your listener. And in part one, we go into that in a little more detail. So tonight, it's about tooting your own horn without blowing it. So there's a well-known book by this name, by Peggy Klaus. It offers some really tactical suggestions on how to play up your successes or brag about yourself and your accomplishments without coming off as a braggart or arrogant. Brag is often known as a four-letter word and a really bad thing. But in order to get somewhere in a workplace environment, you're going to have to find a healthy balance in how to talk about yourself or play up your successes or your skills without coming off as arrogant or blowing it. It's important to think about the concept because you want to get ahead in your career. Self-promotion is necessary. We're taught humility from a very young age, and we're taught the virtues of being a team player, which is great. We're taught not to be braggadocious in elementary school, but we need to be careful and walk a thin line because doing the opposite, not speaking up or, or if you downplay your successes or your skills, it could lead to being underappreciated or allowing others to take credit for your achievements. You don't want that. How many have seen this happen? So has this happened to anybody in the room? One, one, one for yes, zero, zero, zero for no. Um, so it's happened to Demetria and Charlene. Exactly. So what we need to do is develop the skill on how to toot our own horn without blowing it. So first, people know, won't know what you know or what you have done if you don't share it with them. Did someone get picked to do a project that you knew you were the better person for, but you didn't say anything? or they didn't know that you might have been the better person for the project? Let others know through mechanisms you have in your workplace what you've accomplished. And what really helps is keeping a monthly journal of things that you've done. No matter how mundane it might seem, right, the journal is going to be invaluable, especially when it comes time to do your performance appraisal at work. Now, every workplace has some sort of performance appraisal where you meet with your manager every six months or, or every year and some even more often than that. But you're gonna forget things that you did months ago. So jot them down every month. I use Microsoft OneNote. I make a tab for each year and then sections within that tab for each month. And then I just make notes of what I did during those times. It, it, it becomes a priceless log that I can refer back to at the end of the year, when everyone's scrambling to get their performance appraisals done, I can just copy and paste the things that I want in my self-appraisal because I've already made a note of it. And I go, oh, wow, I forgot I did that. Get in the habit now. 
So bragging is not a bad thing. It can help you make connections as you share pieces of yourself. So like the old adage, sometimes it isn't what you say, but how you say it. You have a lot of time to get to know your coworkers or your bosses because you spend most of your day with them. So you need to learn about them. Learn about what commonalities you may share. This helps open up conversations where you can naturally inform others of your experiences. For example, throughout this series, I've been using examples of things that I've seen or I've done that illustrate the point I'm trying to make. People love stories, so tell stories about your experiences while weaving in those stories the things that you've accomplished or the successes that you've had. Then, when that next project around comes around, uh, people will remember, hey, you know, Robin told me that story. It's like keeping a general ledger, exactly. Um, Robin told me that story about when she did ABC and maybe she could help with this. So here's a few tips on how to brag about yourself without blowing it. Keep the emphasis on your hard work. So when you're talking about yourself, don't downplay your hard work and say, oh, that was easy and try to appear humble. And no, that doesn't work. When you've done something big, emphasize how hard the work was. You'll be respected when others know you put a lot of effort into it. Don't belittle other people. You just come off sounding neat. If you say something like, no one has put in the amount of work that I have, you just sound arrogant and spiteful and mean, and people don't want to be around that kind of person. Give credit where credit is due. So give credit to everyone who helped you. Say, I couldn't have done this project without this department or this set of people. People listen when credit is given where credit is due. And for those folks who helped you, you earn their respect and loyalty when you give them credit. Stick to the facts. Don't be vague. Don't say, I'm a great leader, and expect people just to believe it, because that's a sweeping generalization. So what makes you think that you're a great leader? You'll sound more authentic if you tell a story about why that might be true and let the listener come to that conclusion themselves. Say something like, since I took over the project, ABCD has been better. Modest is good, but arrogant is bad. And people can see right through that. The next one is express gratitude. So expressing gratitude shows that you're a grounded person. So be grateful for the job, for the opportunities and what you've been given that allow you to do something great. And by all means, don't add a qualifier. How do you feel like the, the, the cartoon on the screen right now when someone says, I hate to brag, but because you know they're about to brag. So you so that phrase isn't just it's just outright false. Yes, they do intend to brag. Instead, say something like, I'm so excited about the good news, or I'm so excited to announce that ABCD happened. So people will accept that a lot better instead of you saying, I don't mean to toot my own horn. Well, yeah, yeah, you do. But be excited about it. And then finally, avoid the humble brag, because that's false as well. Don't use self-deprecating humor or a remark to offset how you compliment yourself. I am so embarrassed that I left my Porsche under a pine tree. 
you just come off sounding insincere or something like i'm so tired from running those forensic scans all night oh woe is me i can barely keep my eyes open well cue the eye roll because no one's going to want to hear that so directly communicate your accomplishments don't disguise them as a complaint so own your successes without sounding like a narcissist think about the reason why you want to tell people about a success in the first place. And we started talking about that at the beginning of this topic, which is you want to advance in your career and you want people to know what you're capable of and you want opportunities. So make sure that's the why you want to tell people about your success. If you want to be admired by others or you want to make someone else look inferior, just stop. So, you know, Taylor Swift's new song, what's the name of it? Oh yeah, you need to calm down. It is not a mission or a race to prove to other people that you're worthy. You already have the job. You don't need to sell yourself on it anymore, but you have to find that healthy balance of being able to brag about yourself without putting people off. The next one's really important. Um, I had asked, doc for what she thinks about this and this was one of her recommendations too because um, i think both of us have experienced this in the past so ask for what you want very rarely is something given to you just because you may work very hard do extra projects do extra learning but you still find someone else gets the promotion the raise the praise or the award yep well, I have a saying that I say a lot, and it's this. The answer will always be no until you ask. Did you ask for that promotion path? Did you ask for that assignment? Did you ask to be on the audit team that audited the resort in St. Thomas for two weeks? In sports, a coach covets a team player who, when the game is on the line, they always want the ball. The coach may or may not give them the ball, but the Athlete always asks, give me the ball, coach. Are you the one who wants the ball when the game's on the line? And do they know that you do? You will have good managers and you will have not so good managers. But you will have performance appraisal sessions where you can, you can make your ask in those sessions or in that time you spend with your boss. You can even have what I call drive-by conversations in the hallway and say, hey, next time that something X comes along, can, can I give it a shot? Could you think about me for that? Even the not-so-good manager will remember that you asked, and you will be in mind when the project or whatever comes up. But when all else fails and you've asked and you've made it known, but still nothing happens, remember who's in the driver's seat or your career. You are. I always get frustrated with people who complain. I asked for blah, 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 but they gave it to so-and-so, and so they must have pictures. Stop, calm down, take a personal inventory. Here's another adage I like to explain to folks who are always pointing at someone else and blaming someone else for their lot in life, their lack of promotion or whatever, blaming someone else for how bad their life is. So everybody needs to do this exercise with me if everybody's paying attention. So if everybody's paying attention, can I get a one? All right, Marjorie, all right, I got you all. Okay, so with your right hand, make a fist. Point your index finger 
at your computer screen. Do it now. Now with your finger still pointed at the screen, roll your hand to the right so your thumb is facing the ceiling. Now lift up your thumb. Look at that. When you point your finger at someone else, there are three fingers pointed straight back at you. So what you need to do, and you can stop pointing at the screen now, is you, what you need to do is, is take a look at what you could have done to make that situation different. What could you have done to achieve a different outcome? Did you do everything you could have done that would have made it different? You always have the power to change your situation, but be honest with yourself. Look for a transfer to another job. Look for some more education. Ask what you can do to be considered next time. Avoid taking a helpless, defeatist approach and just have the courage to ask. And finally on this topic, with, um, asking is a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness. Get in the habit of asking, can you help me understand? This compliments the other person, shows them too that you are professional enough to ask for understanding. It doesn't make you weak. It shows them that you are strong and confident in yourself and you just earnestly need help understanding. So next, talk about another one, another pet peeve of mine. So before I move on, are there any questions about our previous topic? Tooting your own horn without blowing it. All right. Thanks, everybody. Following up, this is a pet peeve of mine. I admit it. I talked about it in part one. For those of you who may have seen it, it might, this might be a retread. But I'll get forward after forward, reply after reply all, and not know what is going on in an email chain. And here's a great example just from yesterday that happened to me. I got a text message on my cell phone from the Department of Virginia Paymaster. Now I'm in the Marine Corps League. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a veterans organization similar to the American Legion and the VFW, but it's just for Marines. So it's a nationwide organization and we help veterans and we help Marine families and things like that. So I'm one of the officers for the Department of Virginia and for the Mideast Division. So with that backstory, I got a text uh, from the Department of Virginia Paymaster saying that the Department of Virginia website needed to be updated with the new officers that were elected. I'm the web, web sergeant for it. Apparently, the commandant was frustrated with me because I didn't respond to his emails. He contacted the paymaster, who then texted me on my cell phone. Apparently, a third person, the adjutant, had sent me an email weeks ago, and the only line in the email said, quote, for your records. So I ignored it. For my records? I don't keep any Marine Corps League records, so I assumed I was copied, which is common, and it didn't require any action from me. Well, attached to that email was a PDF roster of all the new officers, and I guess they expected through osmosis or whatever that I was supposed to know that I needed to update the officers on the website using that roster, which brings me to lobbing over the wall and then saying not it is not a good business practice. I mentioned this in part one as well. The adjutant sent me the roster weeks ago with the cryptic phrase for your records and never followed up with me. 
Not only did he say in the email, quote, for your records, but he didn't bother trying to contact me again and say, hey, Robin, can you please update the website? The commandant didn't even do that. Instead, the adjutant lobbed it to the commandant, who lobbed it to the paymaster, who then texted to me directly. I responded right away, and after researching what was going on, my email for what happened, I could trace the miscommunication back to that original email that said, for your records. So the lesson here is make the effort. Follow up. Even if something isn't directly your responsibility, help the requester find who is. See it through. Remember in part one, I talked about the importance of networking and building relationships. One of the most valuable assets is a deep Rolodex, a deep network of folks you can call upon. Great example. Um, at my current company, I built a third-party security review program. And then once built, my boss hired somebody to take it over so I could focus on other things, risk management, security awareness, et cetera. The program is run by this new person now, but I back him up if he needs it. Last year, I built a security awareness program with a new software as a service called Inspired eLearning. When I launch a course for the whole company to take, it notifies each person, each person via email with a link to take the course. It gathers useful metrics on the back end and more. But when I configured it, I used our department email address as the sent from address. So if anyone replied to the class notification email, that reply went to the department email address. Also, if anyone had automatic out of office turned on, those notifications would go to the department email address too. Now, because I don't own the third-party program anymore, I never checked the email box for the third-party program, which is the department email box, unless Josh is out. So one day I got an email from Josh telling me that there were over 300 email in the department mailbox, and he thought they were meant for me. After assigning the whole company a training course, Automatic responses or replies flooded the department mailbox. But Josh, instead of freaking out and trying to deal with it himself, he got in touch with me and we resolved it together. So he followed up. Next one is seek out the most positive communication technique for your peer culture. This one is courtesy of Doc2. For example, emojis. Texting is fun and everyone does it now thanks to the invention of the smartphone. We use all kinds of codes and acronyms to communicate with each other, but a word of caution, keep your communication style in line with your audience. One story, I used to play bass guitar in a successful regionally touring band from 2006 to about 2013, 2014. We played everything from nightclubs to smoky bars, from large theaters to music festivals. All the while I worked full-time at a Fortune 200. It was a tough balance, but the point is the language we used and the way we communicated on the road or at a show or with other musicians was very, very different than the language I used at work or the communication style I used with my team and company leaders. Just imagine me going into a conference room and, or presentation and starting with, what's up, y'all? How's everybody doing tonight? There's a balance between your authentic self and choosing the right communication technique for your setting. So be self-aware, understand your own communication style, understand how you absorb information best. 
Really do a personal inventory. Your style and preferences may change over time, but you should always be self-aware. Reflect. Reflect on how others react to your communications. Think about the last few conversations you've had that didn't go very well and ask yourself what the reason could have been. And then be honest. Think about what the last few that went really well. And then compare the two. What worked? What didn't work? What would you change? Are there common elements between the two types of conversations or any trends? Share. Share the best way to communicate with you. Let people know how to best communicate with you. For me, text is the best way. For email, the subject line had better be focused enough to make me prioritize that email. This is also important to learn about everybody else, especially your boss. Ask them straight up, how do you best hear information, boss? How do you like communication? Would you like a weekly summary? How much detail would you like? What do you need from me? to help you be successful. It's, a very it's very important to learn about this, about your manager and your peers and teammates, because otherwise you don't know how to communicate with each other. We might speak the same language, but then we really don't communicate. Align with the other person. Don't assume they can take a meeting with you. Don't just lob something over the wall and say, okay, you're invited to a meeting on this day. You didn't even ask me if I was available. This just happened to me today. I told them, they asked me when I was available. I told them when I was available and then they scheduled the meeting when I wasn't available. Then why'd you bother asking me when I was available? If you've learned their communication preferences, use them. And the next one, you can hear me getting stressed. So stress impacts communication. When people are under stress, they act differently. There are different chemicals involved that drive different parts of your brain and it impacts your behavior. People's voices change, oftentimes to a higher pitch. So just 30 seconds ago, my voice was different because I was under stress telling that story. And you try, they try to speak in communication that's racing through their brains and it's often botched because they're desperate to get their message out. This is why you see communication departments, processes for managing communication, multiple approvals that need to happen before communication can go out. Chicken Little, the story of Chicken Little is a great example. To him, everything was on fire always and every message he communicated was an emergency when in fact, it was only an emergency to him. And eventually people stopped listening. They won't listen when the time comes that you really need them to listen. So recognize your own stress. Sit and take an inventory of what you were thinking, feeling, your heart rate, your respiration. Always, always, always take time before you hit send. Get out of your own stress head and do a risk assessment on what you're about to say. Consider all the impacts of the message for each recipient. It's also good practice in a moment like that to have someone read the communication before you send it. Stress does crazy things to people. The next one might appear shocking on paper. Let me check my timing. Good, we're in a good place. The corporation doesn't care about you. Shocking, I know. It doesn't care about you, but the people do. 
So remember when I talked about networking in part one, the relationships you make at work matter and those people do care about you. But unless the circumstances are different, they really care first and foremost, I'm sorry to tell you about themselves. One story, an executive who was in charge of an enterprise level project held a big town hall meeting that was televised across the company. Thousands of people watched at the same time on this day. The project made people do new processes and new procedures, essentially operating the company with control that was mandated. This made a lot of people uncomfortable and many had complained about these new policies and these new controls. But that day he stood on the stage and he said to everyone, I don't wake up every morning trying to think of ways to make your life miserable. Think about that statement. I don't wake up every morning trying to think of ways to make your life miserable. It really gave everyone the insight that this executive wasn't a demon, but everybody had demonized him. No, he didn't wake up every day trying to think of ways to make my life miserable. In fact, he didn't think about us at all. He thought about himself, his own aches and pains, his own boss, his own personal life, his own family, his own friends. The same executive was my boss, and in a one-on-one -on -one session with him one day, I was complaining about how some executive somewhere else in some line of business wasn't doing what he was supposed to do, what I needed him to do. And he said to me, he doesn't care about you. Don't get fixated on him. Just do what you need to do. As much as I hated to admit it at the time, he was right. The corporation, which drives what is done at a company, whether it's a new technology, customer service, new implementation, whatever, is decided at the highest levels of the corporation. The corporation is a cold entity. It's a number, an EIN, an employer identification number to the government for taxes. It's an IP address. You're a binary number, a record in a database. That system processing the payroll doesn't know who you are and doesn't care about you. If your employee ID pops up on a spreadsheet and the top list of the non-performers or the top list of the highest paid people and they need to cut headcount and your number gets selected, then you're done. Is it really this cold? Well, it can be, it can be at these companies. This is why I keep stressing networking and relationships in your inner circle are so important. You'll most likely never know everyone in the company but you can certainly build relationships and a positive reputation within your circle that you can influence. Your sphere of influence is where you should focus. When you take a job, you sign a contract between you and the corporation. You agree to work so many hours a week doing a specific job, exchanging your time for their money. That's it. I give you my time, you give me money, maybe some benefits. You do not sign a contract with your coworkers, so you can't hold them accountable for actions of the corporation. This goes back to the idea in part one when I mentioned negative, negativity in the workplace. Don't be that person that complains about everything all the time, that everyone hates to see coming because you're such a downer and you're always complaining about something wrong with the company. That person's lost sight of the fact that they signed a contract with the corporation. They agreed to give their time in exchange for money and benefits, period. There's an old Marine Corps recruiting poster 
popular back in the 1980s. For those of you who have never met me before, I was I spent about 11 years in the Marine Corps. And um, it was during the 80s and 90s. Um, so here's this really cool recruiting poster from the 80s. We didn't promise you a rose garden. No, we didn't. When you signed the contract in exchange for the Marine Corps life for some money, we didn't promise you a rose garden. But interestingly, at that same time, there was a song um, popular at the same time that was by, I think, what, Lynn Anderson? And I don't know, some of you may, may have never heard of it, but let's just listen to an excerpt. Hopefully everybody heard a little bit of that. Uh, one of my favorite lines in that song is, when you take, you got to give. When you take, you got to give. So live and let live or let go. When you make the contract with the company, you've got to give your time and energy. So live and let live. Accept what's going on there. Take advantage of as many things as you can. Or in more corporate terms, get with the program. Let go and move on. Surf the change curve like we talked about in part one. If you believe you've done everything you can do, doing what I explained a few minutes ago, open your hand and ask yourself the question, change the situation or change your attitude about the situation or change your job. No one promise you, promises you a rose garden except maybe a gardening company, but then even then you may not get to work in the garden. But enough of this. Next topic. <laughs> You're budgeted for 2,087 um, hours per year. If you're on salary, you can divide your salary by that number and come up with what your hourly wage is, if that helps. Conversely, multiply your hourly wage times 2,087 and you'll get an approximate annual salary. Holidays are excluded. But interestingly, Americans average 137 more hours per year. And we give it away to the companies. Why do we do that? Well, because casual overtime is expected. We pay you a salary. We expect you to work the amount of hours it takes to get the work done. But this is a trap. The work needs to get done, and the corporation has determined that for your job, for you, 40 hours a week should be able to get it done. If you can't get it done in that amount of time, then casual overtime to get it done is expected. But if you can't legitimately get it done in the casual overtime, despite your best efforts, management needs to know that because they have most likely underestimated the work and they need to hire more people. So don't think you're being courageous or you're being a team player or you're being a martyr by just sacrificing yourself for 50, 60, 80 hours a week. I've done this. Listen to someone who has done it. Effort is one thing, 
but sacrificing your health, your relationships, and your mental health is wrong. Don't do it. Speak up. Look at the work objectively and consider if you might be the reason it's not getting done. Like you don't have the skills or whether it's really too much for one person to get it done, even with casual overtime. Bring it to your boss's attention. They'll never know if you don't tell them. I never knew, here's an example, that someone on my team was staying until all hours of the night, nearly every weeknight, in order to get some forensic testing completed. He didn't tell me, and none of his colleagues told me. Shame on them. I only found out because one night I'd taken the shuttle back from Northern Virginia, and it dropped us off in the parking lot in front of our buildings, and I needed to get something from my office. So I badged myself in, and I went upstairs to my office, and I saw a glow coming from one particular cube. And I walked over to find him sitting there in the darkness with just the glow from his monitor pouring over spreadsheets and data. It wasn't until then that he told me that he had been doing this for weeks to meet my deadlines. This taught me a valuable lesson as a leader. Check in with your folks and find out how they're delivering to your deadlines. But he should have told me the effort it was taking him so I could have realigned his work or added people to relieve him. That level of effort won't always get you noticed. It won't always get you a promotion or a raise, and people won't always know you're putting in that kind of effort. Finally, of the negative stuff, the truth. You are replaceable. No one is indispensable. I promise you that this is true. I've known people who've thought or said, they'll never get rid of me or my team. We're too important to insert the process name. Then they're shocked and dismayed and crushed when their department gets cut or merged with another, or when their manager is released and then the department's put under another department. It's like starting all over again. It is starting all over again. And this is when the change curve happens and everybody starts to go through the denial phase and the frustration of the depression. But what did I say one of the most important things was you could do? Network, network, network. Build those relationships. And finally, this idea about time. Time is the only true currency and you have a finite amount. We say it's only money, we'll make more. But unlike money, you can't make more time. No one has invented a time machine yet, as far as I know. Do you spend your time? If time is currency, then where do you spend it? You choose to spend time or spend some of your currency to meet me here tonight or when you play this recording, and I appreciate that time. But remember, if you spend time, you never get that time back. You know how someone sees something when they say, I can't unsee that. Well, you can't unspend time. There are no refunds or exchanges. So for the currency of time you're spending, what's the value you get in return? In your workplace, you spend time in return for the paycheck they give you, remember? So I give you time, you give me money and benefits. That's the contract between you and the corporation that we just discussed. But at work, are you getting more than a paycheck? You're spending time at work, but are you investing it too? 
you get a paycheck, maybe benefits, but do you also get other things? Do you get job satisfaction? Do you get emotional support? Do you get experience? Do you get to nurture the network that you've built? Do you get educational opportunities? Do you get to learn at work? Is the time you spend at work a good investment? Ask yourself those questions. If the answer is no, then change something. Change how you do your work, change how you conduct your relationships, change your perception, learn something new, meet new people. If you have lunch every, desk, every day at your desk, try having lunch in the cafeteria once a week or ask a group of people to go to lunch together or meet for coffee in the morning. Yes, you may have a contract between yourself and the company for time in exchange for money, but where you give your time, consider that you can make it more than that. Doing this is up to you, and it's not up to the company to give it to you. And I see a lot of people over my career make this mistake. The company doesn't owe you anything. It is not up to the company to give you anything. Time for money, it's the agreement you've made. Everything else is up to you. So one of my favorite things to ask myself when I become stressed out or when I get overwhelmed by all the kind, all the things that I have to do and all the tasks over my head, I say, okay, is the world gonna to come to an end? I spent a lot of years working at places where I traveled a lot when I only knew the city I was in by what was printed on the t-shirts in the airport terminal gift shop. I wanted to do well and I worked very hard and I worked probably 80 hours a week, not because I had to, but because I wanted to. I realized I had something to prove, I thought I did. I thought I was proving it to my company or my bosses, but I was really proving to myself, trying to overcome something that haunted me since early childhood. And in the process, I was slowly killing myself. Stress does weird and crazy things to the body and none of them are good. Stress means you're in fight or flight mode constantly. Even when you're asleep, your heart rate is elevated, your blood pressure is elevated, your synapses are firing in your brain constantly. So you are never relieved of the stress and you never truly rest. Your body never recovers from the previous day. Just as an experiment for those who may commute for everybody in here tonight using public transportation or, or you live in big cities or you drive to work in traffic, take a minute and look around at the other people. Earlier in my career, I worked in Chicago. I lived on North Lakeshore Drive and I had to take the L train downtown to work and back every day. It was about 30 minutes on the train. My building was a block away from the Sears Tower. I was excited and enthusiastic at the first time when I got on the train. I'd never been on a train before. I was nervous about it and whether I would know when it was, you know, my time to get off the train or would I have to ride it all the way around, I was, I was, I was freaked out. I studied the maps on the wall and the train car. Over time, I started to really look around at the people and during certain times of the day, the train was really packed. I was amazed to notice that even though we were packed in like sardines, no one touched each other and no one looked at each other. Back then we didn't have smartphones to look at and distract ourselves. So most had a copy of the newspaper carefully folded in tiny little square so they could read it with an art, you know, read an article in one hand and hold on to the railing with another, with the other hand. I was amazed that no one looked at each other. Everyone had a thousand yard stare. Eyes open, but not seeing. Dark circles under their eyes. Then I no started noticing the same 
thing, walking down the street, being careful not to disrupt the flow and the cadence of everybody else walking in the same direction. It felt like we were lemmings, we were drones. The same was true in New York City, the same phenomenon. So try noticing the other folks the next time you're in that situation. And the next time you feel something urgent must be done by today at noon or by tomorrow morning, ask yourself if it really has to. Is the world going to come to an end? Ask yourself if the world will come to an end if I don't mow the lawn today or the world will come to an end if I don't finish the spreadsheet tonight. Be diligent, of course, but I promise you the world will not come to an end unless, of course, your job involves nuclear buttons or codes. Which brings me to avoiding creating your own fire drills <laughs> or being sucked into someone else's. So say you've mastered the, is the world going to come to an end to temporary urgency or propensity for creating your own fire drill? But there's someone at work who does it all the time. You know that person. Another lack of planning on your part does not necessarily create an emergency on my part. There will be times when you really need to drop everything and do whatever is asked of you. If your boss needs something ASAP, I do not encourage you to question them. Is the world going to come to an end, boss? That could really hurt you and get you escorted out. If you do need something urgently, there's probably a good reason why, and a reason um, which you are not aware, nor should you be. That's not that's their worry and not yours, but they need something from you urgently. Then ask politely, would you like me to re reprioritize ABCD to do this for you now? In their haste, they may not know what ABCD is. And they'll probably ask themselves, is the world going to come to an end if I don't have Robin do this right now? You make it their decision that you reprioritized it. But you have to make sure they know something else will fall to the bottom of the stack because you moved their ask to the top. Get perspective. You're going home at the end of the day. A friend once told me about a senior person they met at their office who in every meeting seemed cool, calm, and collected and never got riled up or emotional about anything. When everyone else was getting upset about some reorganization or some power struggle or some drama in the department or some change the company was going through, this guy was cool as a cucumber through it all. One day she asked him how he could be that way. He told her, I get to go home tonight and see my family. I get to sleep in a warm bed. No one is shooting at me. He had deployed to Iraq several times and returned to his job with a keen perspective. He understood the contract for time in exchange for money. He understood that he didn't have to take that day home with him. And he understood the perspective that his situation could have been and had been much worse. So remember what happens during the day, whatever happens during the day, you get to go home tonight. Then this was interesting, staggering to me, actually. The average person touches their smartphone 2,617 times a day. The top addicts of that number are 5,427 times a day. So what's going on in the smartphone that's so engaging? I, I just don't know. Is it time you've spent or is it time you're investing? 
Here's some inter inter really interesting statistics from the Bureau of Labor Statistics from 2017 or 2018. Wow. We spend what's red on the screen, what I circled in red, 7.47 hours on work-related activities every day. The green circles are hours spent with family or in family activities, 1.95 hours. On average, the bulk of our days are spent working, the most at 7.47, sleeping, 8.80, and watching TV at 2.77. Interestingly, the average time spent on education is 0.48. Attending a class is 0.26 hours, and doing homework or research coming in at 0.18 hours. Do you spend your time or do you invest it? Once it's gone, we can never get it back. What would your breakdown on this chart be for you, for you and your family? Just think about that. So in summary, talk about your successes where appropriate. Ask for what you want. Sorry, that was my dog. Follow up, check in with people, follow up with them. Build your own network, care about people, actually genuinely care how they are today. Invest your time, don't just spend it. And is the world gonna come to an end really if I don't get that done today? Be careful when you use that one on your boss. And don't create fire drills. And then take a minute, do an inventory. Think about how you're really coming off in the world and the things that you're doing and the impact that they're making and the investment that you're making with your time, whether you're spending it or investing it. So I really wanted to uh, thank you all for attending tonight, 8.51, good, Whew. I came in under time. When I'm not working, I'm thinking about working. Demetria, we gotta get you thinking about something else, I'm just saying. If you love your work, right and you really love what you do and you love thinking about it and it really helps you when i think about solving problems at night before i go to sleep so but my time my thoughts at night before i go to sleep they've changed from in the past where i used to think about that work and that spreadsheet and everything and they've changed now to i think about hmm how can i design that garden so it doesn't get flooded when the pond gets too high right so i think about things that way Thanks, Marjorie. I think about things that way. Um, earlier in my career, I did that a lot. I thought about, about work all the time and, and um, I made a lot of mistakes. All right, bye-bye. Questions from anybody? This was fun. Um, if you haven't seen part one, see you, Jonathan. If you haven't seen part one, go ahead and uh, go to Freedcamp, check it out. And uh, my contact information's in there. You can ask me questions anytime. All right, everybody. Thanks for coming.